Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You know, it's a universal truth throughout the scripture that right and righteousness will one day prevail. But, did you know that is not an individual experience? What I mean by that is if you look through the scriptures, all the prophecy pointing of Christ's return, the triumph of the believer, but as a personal matter, there are many examples in scriptures of godly people that are destroyed by evil. And in their personal experience, they did not see in their life right prevailed. Such is the time and place that we'll be in this morning in this 52nd Psalm. In fact, if you look there just as the heading, and we'll visit this a little bit, but in the heading you'll see this to the chief musician on Maskell, a Psalm of David. And here's a fellow that, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you'll never find his name mentioned in any of the New Testament writings. You'll never find his name mentioned in any of the prophetical writings outside of this passage here in Psalms. You'll not find his name mentioned in the Pentateuch. You'll not find his name mentioned outside of here in the Psalms in the poetical books. But his name stands as Dog the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. As we look through this Psalm, it really opens a new subdivision within this second book. In fact, I would submit to you that the next 52, 53, 54, 55 have as an overarching theme, really, uh, the, the feeling or the perspective of an individual, a saint, a righteous individual that is being persecuted. You'll see that in 52, 3, 4, and 5. Equally, when you look at Psalm 52, and I read that heading to you, uh, there's a number of headings throughout the Psalms. Some of it, it just tells you he's playing it perhaps on Shiganoth, or perhaps that it was written to the chief musician. You'll find that a number of times, uh, to the chief singer, as it were, also. But as you look through the Psalms, all 150 of them, there's only about 12 of them that in their heading have a historical context in it. And eight of those 12 are in this particular second book of Psalms. Now, I've got a list, so if you're taking notes, I'll write them. save you the time of going to look through each one and find them. The first time you'll find a historical context tied to the book of Psalms will be in, I believe it's the third Psalm. And that has on the historical account of Absalom and the historical account that dealt with he and David. In Psalm 18, David, the historical context, was delivered from Saul. In the 34th Psalm, uh, David, uh, the theme there says about changing his behavior before Abimelech. In the 54th Psalm, it says when Ziph came to Saul. In the 56th Psalm, when the Philistines took him, that is David, to Gath. In the 57th Psalm, when David fled to Saul in the cave, perhaps Adullam. In the 59th Psalm, when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him, him being David. In the 60th Psalm, when Joab returned and smote of Edom in the valley of Salt 12,000. That's the heading that's preserved. In the 63rd Psalm, when David was in the wilderness of Judah. 
And then finally in the 142nd Psalm, a prayer when he was in the cave. And then the otherwise one is the 52nd, which we read just a moment before. And a few Sundays ago, the last one is the 51st Psalm, of course, which is uh, the context of David and Bathsheba. It's interesting to note as you look at all of these that one thing that you'll see about the Psalms is there is an arrangement to them, as I have highlighted to you in the past. They are not randomly placed um, together. Uh, They are not placed chronologically. If they were placed chronologically, then you would have in one book of the Psalms all of the historical ones. But you find rather the historical ones from the third Psalm to the hundred and 47th Psalm. They're not historical. They are arranged in subsets and in divisions for the purpose, and this brings us an interesting one. Do you see the 52nd Psalm, that Hebrew word M-A-S-C-H-I-L, maskel? It has the idea of deep instruction. And in fact, just by way, I don't know that we'll get to all of these, but if you look at 53 and 54 and 55, you'll see that same Hebrew statement in the heading of each of those psalms. The idea of this is the psalmist is writing it under inspiration. Uh, God moving upon him for this. It was given for deep instruction. What's the instruction? Well, these four psalms, 52, 53, 54, and 55, deal with the faithful that are opposed and persecuted by evil people. And the Holy Spirit of God is crying to us, now listen... I want to give you some deep understanding and instructions about some things, both practically and prophetically. I would submit that not only in the 52nd Psalm, singularly instruction just on Dog the Edomite, he is not an important man in the annals of Israeli history. In fact, as we'll discover to you in just a moment, he's an Edomite. He's not even a Jew. He's the head shepherd of the house of Saul. There's no record available in all of Scripture that tells you what happens after the fateful day in the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. Nothing's mentioned. So this writing is not in and of itself exclusively about Dog the Edomite. Yet, we would be remiss as faithful Bible students as you read down through the 52nd Psalm with a little bit of your brain, you know, turned on and focused, that you'll find so much parallel with a coming future wicked man that will persecute righteous people, of which those righteous people, in their personal experience, will never see made right. Now, unless I've been of sleight of hand, I would refer to who that is. I'm talking about the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, that king that Daniel said will come and will persecute the children of Israel primarily during that day that is referred to by, is it Ezekiel or Jeremiah, that that time of Jacob's trouble? I mean, Matthew chapter 24 speaks of the great fact that in that approximately three and a half years after his ascension as that position as as an authoritative one on the national power, that he'll turn against Israel that he had previously made a truce with and will begin to persecute them in the 24th chapter. The Lord speaking here in the Olivet Discourse says, Pray not that your flight be not in winter. Woe unto them when you see it comes at this time. Run into your house. Run away. Why? Because he is going to bring the greatest destruction upon the nation of Israel that heretofore has ever been seen. 
It'll make the Spanish Inquisition look as little. It'll make Hitler's Holocaust seem simplistic in its planning. It will be devastating. And he will not stop with just the Jewish, and I must emphasize this, though his focus will be Israel as a whole. It seems that it will be primarily focused on Israel the godly, particularly upon those 144,000. And the Revelation speaks of those saints that were murdered for the cause of Jesus Christ, their souls under the altar crying, How long, O God, how long? And they would die and they would not see the Antichrist deposed. It will be some time later. I think as you focus on these next four Psalms, you would be remiss not to see that parallel. It's historically true and it's prophetically true as well. Now, as we go forward in these chapters, a little bit of backstory, as I said, with Dog. So let me, let me without turning to the Psalm, the, 100, uh, the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel, let me give you a little bit of a narrative. Uh, but Moses is found in the 14th, 21st, and 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. Dog, as could be expressly put, is an evil man. He's an Edomite. Uh, it, I would note in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul early in his uh, reign as king of Israel, begins to lead in military advancement to the surrounding nations to reclaim the land that God had given them. Over times preceding uh, his reign, they had ebbed and flowed under judges. Here was the rightness of this. God wanted them to be faithful to him. Yet they could not. In fact, I would put it this. They would not. Walk by faith and not by sight. I might would add that that is the same sin that so often plagues Christians today. A failure to walk by faith and not by sight. And surely the scripture says, whatsoever is not a faith is of sin. And they had sinned against God. They had lusted against him in his heart, and their heart. And so God would bring upon them these tyrants of old that would enslave them and persecute them. And they would go through a series of times and they would cry out to God and they would worship him exclusively. And God would bring a judge. And this judge, his tenure was always short. Sometimes they were longer, most times they were shorter. And they would be at the forefront of, of leading the children of Israel and they would be delivered. And such then Israel would go back into uh, her free worship of God and then a certain amount of time would pass and that cycle would start all over again. Here's that final cycle, and the prophet is Samuel. And there's a problem with Samuel. God gave him a long time. My, I think one of the most glorious passages about Samuel, as I've reflected on recently, is in the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. He's a young man, and every year his mama would come to see him at a certain time of year, and she'd bring the little ephod. Because he's a little fella. One fell day... Here, Hophni uh, Phinehas and Eli, the Philistines are attacking and they take the Ark of the Covenant out and it's captured. And Phinehas and Hophni, they're destroyed. And Eli falls off backwards and breaks his neck and a little boy is born named Ichabod. At the very moment, all of this calamity, the highest priestly order is completely exterminated as it was by the hand of God at one fell swoop. The descendants of Eli are infants. There's only one that's in between the ages of Hophni and Phinehas and those infants that had trained under the high priest and his name is Samuel. By the time you get to the fifth or sixth chapter, I think we'd be remiss to think of Samuel as the old man 
that we find him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Rather, he's a young man. Just a small fella. I'm not saying five. I think later teens is probably more accurate. Perhaps at least 20, maybe 25. I think that's a good range. But by consideration to Eli, he was a very young man. And he'd reign as somewhat as high priest, somewhat as prophet, and also as a judge of Israel. And they had something very unique during his tenure. They were led by the autocratic decrees of God. It embodied by a man that is faithful, true, and just. But at the end of his life, his sons had, well, they'd become an abomination, a bunch of cheats and liars. The house of Israel said, we'll not follow him. Give us a king. And you're aware of this narrative that Saul becomes that first king. And shortly thereafter, Saul fulfills all that Samuel had said about him. That if you get a king, he's going to take, 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 take. It will not go like you want it to go. So Saul arranges himself and he places an army together and by somewhat direct decree begins to go as the children of Israel wanted to to follow a king in a battle. And they would go against the Philistines in chapter 14. And you get down to about verse 47 when he's finished with the Philistines. Though he did not eradicate them, he turns to the opposite side of the border and he begins to attack Amnon and Edom and all of these other municipalities that had begun to encroach upon the God-given territory of the land of Israel. There's a biblical principle there. You ready? Here it is. Very simple. If you won't strive and fight for what God has given you, you will not have it. That's the way it works. In your spiritual life, if there's not diligence and dedication, I promise you there will not be spiritual maturity and growth. Ultimately, you and I have to have an innate personal desire to go forward. 18th chapter of Proverbs. Through desire, a young man seeketh and intermingleth with all wisdom. If you want wisdom in life, you're going to have to ask God for it. And we're blessed to know the truths of James chapter 1, that he abradeth not, that he'll give it to you. So Samuel and the children of Israel would go back that which they have own, their own sin lost. There's a wonderful passage, 47th verse of the 14th chapter. It said, and Saul vexed them. You know what that means? He's tearing them up. God gave them a victory. Everywhere he turned, he was defeating them. Left, right, front, center. There's something in there of a little bit of, a, if I can use this in a national setting, a revival of the greatness of Israel. It would seem to me that during that 14th chapter when he vexes Edom, he takes to him something certain, certain uh, servants. Among them likely was this Dog. And Dog had some aptitude about him because the next time we, or the first time we're introduced to him in chapter 21, he is referred to as kind of the chiefest of Saul's herdsmen. Now that strikes me as an interesting portion, doesn't it to you? How did an Edomite become the chiefest shepherd, herdsman if you will, to the Jewish king? Were there no other Jewish princes? Were there no other Jewish men that he could have placed in that pseudo-cabinet position? How did an Edomite get into authority in the king's household? Either this man is by nature treacherous 
and had during the previous war between Edom and, and Israel turned and made alliance and allegiance with, uh, with Saul, or the man was captured, perhaps as a young man, and as was common, the custom placed into service. But he had aptitude. No doubt aptitude with some type of organization and instruction. And he seemingly always had a close presence with Saul. The next time you find about Dog in the 21st chapter, you'll find out that he was an observant man. By the way, evil people are often observant people. They watch what Christians do. So, Dog, head herdsman, he's an observant man. He looks out into the land of Nob, and here comes this rebel against Saul. His name's David. And David has a problem in the 21st chapter of Samuel. He's hungry, and he's on the run. Saul is pressing to kill him. Only something has uniquely happened at this particular time in Saul and David's life. He has no sword or armament with him. It's just him. And so he comes into where the home of the high priest was, Elimelech, and says to him, says, you have any meat? He said, all I have is this bread. You know, the dedicated bread. And so David acquires a portion of it. Yet there's something else the old high priest had. He had the sword that belonged to Goliath. And I would wonder if that wasn't a wonderful sight there. A sword bigger than the man he gave it to. And David takes events and he runs. He finds safety. And he goes on and he begins to go even to the cave of Dulam and he begins to gather his men together. They have fled. We're now going to regather. And they have escaped earlier to Achish. And from Achish they have gone and gathered themselves at the cave of Adullam. Time has passed. And then Saul is wondering what happened to David. And that's when Dog, who had witnessed with his own eyes what the people of Nob did, and what the high priest did, and what David did, that David, or rather I should say Dog, told on him. And he perhaps, if timing means anything, told Saul in the most awfulest of time. You see, he didn't tell him early. He waited until basically all of Saul's men are present at Nob where the high priest is. He rats them out. And realizing now that it's true, Saul in a foul manner turns to his servants and says, kill Abathar and Elimelech and all the house. And you know what those servants of Saul would do? They wouldn't lay hands on any of them. It's a high priest. We can't do this. We're not going to kill these. We may not agree with what they did, but these are righteous people. We're not going to do it. But fortunately, Saul had a man that had the most treacherous of all human character, Dog. And what's interesting when you look into verses number 18 and 19 at Dog, he killed 85 members of the priestly order in that day. Not just the old man in the next line. He killed 80, the scripture says, 85 men that wore the ephod. And wearing the ephod was that symbolic vesture that belonged to the high priestly order. He killed them all. You'd have thought that got the message across. But this bloodlust of Dog ended not there. For in verse number 19, you would find out that he would put to sword the city of Nob. 
with its men, its women, its children. The scripture says even beyond that, those that gave suck. And their cattle and their donkeys and their sheep. He did to Nob and to that priestly order what Saul could not do to Agag and Amalek. This is our introduction to Dogen. David, reflecting on that, said, let me give some deep instruction here. Universal truth, right will ultimately prevail. But that is not the same thing as a personal experience. These were just, some of these were just people. Some of these were honorable people. Some of these were completely innocent people. Yet because of a king with continually lower moral convictions and a bloodthirsty heathen, all of them were slaughtered. That's the narrative of the 52nd Psalm by which David writes. As we look in this just for a few moments, there's kind of three divisions that I'll share with you. You got the portrait of the evil man in the first few verses. That's followed in verses number 5 through 7, a prophecy about his end. And then the last two verses, really, I would say, verse 8 and 9, deal with the fault of a promise everlasting. A promise everlasting. Let's look at these for a moment, if we will, in verses 1 through 4. He speaks of, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Here's a great phrase. If you write in your Bible, you, you circle those words, mighty man. And I'll give you a little bit of a grammatical lesson. The word mighty man stands as a distinction from the Hebrew word that just signifies uh, the gender or descriptive verse, word, phrase of man. Whenever you're reading through your scriptures and you find the word mighty man, it, it means something different than when you find the word that just means man. The classification of mighty man comes from the root Hebrew word geber, and it always means, if you will, a strong man. I believe in the 127th Psalm, it starts out, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. Do you remember this? And then it equates those children like being arrows in the hand of a, do you remember? Same word, mighty man. You know the difference? Well, I'm a man. Many men here today. How many of you are proficient with a bow and arrow? Well, that's not most of us. Do you get the difference? If the psalmist had said, hey, it says an arrow in the hands of a man, that honestly would not strike as much fear into my heart as if the arrow was in the hands of a mighty man. One of the first times you find this word mighty man in all the scriptures goes all the way back to, I think it's Genesis chapter 8, and it was that mighty hunter that built the cities and the kingdom of Babel. That's the idea. It, it has with it the idea of a strong man, a tyrant, a man that has honed to razor's edge. You would note in verse number 2, he speaks of a sharp razor. He has honed to razor's edge his ability to destroy, to kill, and bring about death and ruin. When David's reflecting primarily on Dog, and by parallel, all evil man, up to and including the ungodly future king, the Antichrist, that son of perdition, 
He speaks of him as a mighty man, a man that devises mischief, whose tongue by continuation is like a sharp razor and worketh deceitfully, that loveth evil more than good, and lying whether rather than to speak righteousness. There seems to be three portraits here in pertaining to this evil man, Dog, and others. Number one, they're marked by the characteristic or attribute of being proud. Of being proud. Note the word there that's used in verse number one. Why boasteth thyself? When I consider the word boasting and I look at this idea of proud, it brings us to the consideration there's a level of smugness that is present. There's a level of self-sufficiency. No doubt Dog in his person thought pretty highly of himself. Wasn't every little farm boy in Edom that rose to the highest ranks being called the chiefest herdsman in the house of Saul? Not every little boy in Edom would grow up and be like him. He had navigated international diplomacy. He by own skill and craft had brought himself into the presence with his king who now was his benefactor. He's full of himself. He's full of his own intrigues. In his mind, he considers himself superior. It's interesting as note that when he witnessed where David went, the sin of Nob, the village, and all of those priestlies, and, and what he gathered unto himself, the showbread, and of course the sword, he didn't at that point run and go tell Saul, I found David, and this is what he's doing. You know what he did? took it he put it in his pocket he said there'll be a convenient time for me to use this and at the most appropriate time to inflict the most appropriate damage and to benefit myself in the most wondrous thing that's when I'll pull this card out and throw it on the table I mean he waited till Saul I mean, even Saul who on multiple occasions tried to kill David and Jonathan when those events came to their conclusion, he was unsuccessful in both of them, he always had a matter of sorrow about it. He never considered killing Jesse, did he? He doesn't go to Bethlehem and eradicate all. The man has a personal check and balance. Why? I believe it's part and token of his salvation. But nevertheless, you know what would happen with Dog if he just went around and started killing people? But he knew if he could play that card at the right time, he'd get a, get a, get a what is it called? Get out of jail free card. And when he played it, Saul was so dispossessed of any intellect, morality, or conscious direction that they stood by and let this guy murder an entire community. And there's no record of what happened to him. He likely died of perhaps natural causes before David became king. You see, he thinks very highly of himself. He has a natural ability of cunning, pride, and boastfulness. He waited to use this information so that he could weaponize it to maximize any advantage that he could possibly have. You look down to verse number three and there's a second characteristic in this portrait of an evil man. Thou lovest evil more than good. 
I forgot to reference this, but this EST on the end of these verbs, boastest, lovest, that there is as a continuation to it, a desire beckoned unto it, a focus and a drive for it. You lovest evil. Dove loves evil. It brought him great joy to kill 85 individuals plus a whole city. No doubt in his mind, like Haman, many centuries yet ahead, he would relish in the fact that those that were his enemies were now his conquered foes. He loved evil. It comes to my mind in consideration that this might have been a great plot for him all the while. If I can stay close to the king and the king's full of bitterness because he ain't walking with God, and if he's trying to kill people and nobody's prosecuting him, they'll come this time and if I can just be there because what I really want to do is I want to kill some of these people for the vengeance with a wicked heart. And so Dog does this. Smites the city of Nob. Smites the righteous. He advanced and aligned himself with the most evil, murderous aspects of Saul's morality. Dog was boastful, full of pride and self-sufficiency. Dove loved evil. There's one other thing. Look in verse 4. Thou, here's a continual thought, right? It's the second thing he loved. Thou lovest, do you see that next word? What is it? Circle it. All devouring words. O thou deceitful tongue. In fact, if you go back to verses 1 through 4, you can find out there's several references about his tongue. He, he speaks in verse number 2, it desires mischief, it worketh deceitfully, it's a sharp razor, um, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. One of the things that high marked, high watermark about Dogear is he was a man of renowned speech. He knew how to be cutting with his tongue. He knew how to be destructive. A secondary application we could make out of this is this. Words aren't neutral. James speaks of this in James chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He talks about that tongue being a little member. Yet it boasteth, interesting lesson there, great things. Full of deadly poison. Who can tame it? Dog was a man that sought with his tongue and his heart to advance himself with any evil that he could. You know, thinking of this tongue, it, it's important for you and I to consider that anyone that has the ability to articulate and speak is capable of evil with their words. Ergo, the importance to remind ourselves this morning of the truths of Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth, but that which is good to the use of but our couples conference. And uh, I, don't, I don't think the pastor said it, but we recently got the ladies' sessions up online. Just a plug if you haven't had a chance for online. And... Um, Working, working through some of that and getting preparation, she said the same thing about three or four times. 
Don't say it. Don't say it. You don't have to apologize for what you didn't say. I thought it was interesting. How often is the inverse true? That we just say it. Some things are better left said. I misspoke, didn't I? You got my point? They're just better left unsaid. Oh, Christian, be careful. One of the, one of the identifying marks of an evil person is how they use their tongue. Could we not then say that the inverse is probably true as well? That one of the marks of God's children is how they use their tongue. How it's full of forgiveness and love and kindness and tenderness and truth and lightening one another. There's distinction to be made. Note the second few verses there in verse number 5 through 7. The prophecy of his end. I mentioned to you at the onset that it's a truth. That truth and righteousness will prevail. But as a practical matter, sometimes the innocent and the righteous suffer, or in this case are even murdered. And for a time, Psalms are full of these, it would seem that sometimes the wicked flourish. The 37th Psalm talks about them spreading themselves. Sometimes these are true. Sometimes evil people prosper and judgment seems delayed. And in fact, sometimes the evil people prosper and evil ways prosper in the most diabolical means while the righteous people stand back and say, how in the world is this occurring? Cannot people see through this? Cannot they see through the facade of honesty? Cannot they look through the hypocrisy of lies? Doug was like that. But God's going to make a promise regarding Doug's end and by prophetical means regarding the end of all unrighteous, including the Antichrist. Look, look if you will. I, I pinned mine in my side margin. God's going to use four words, four active words about the ungodly. A prophecy of his end. Notice he says there in verse number 5, God shall likewise, in fact, let me give you these verbs and then I'll come back to them quick. He said, God shall likewise destroy thee, take thee away, pluck thee out of thy dwelling place, and root thee out of the land of thy living. And then he ends with that word, Selah. Now consider these things. So let's take a moment and consider them. Destroy. Destroy, it has the idea of smashing into pieces. It's like the days of the king. When a godly king would rise up, he would destroy, the words present, all the altars of idolatry. Usually the word that is often used is he would tear them down. Let me drive the connotation home. It would be the idea of smashing into smithereens of raising it, of destroying it in such a way that nobody by human measure could ever rebuild that thing again. To waste it into little pieces. God said, Dog, I'm going to destroy you. The second one, I'm going to take thee away. This is an interesting one. It has with it the idea of a snatching quick force. In fact, 
if you're looking concordance, it has, the, it has something along this line. It, it has the idea to pick up as though like fire. Now, I was a fellow once who was at a blacksmith shop, you know, and he kept touching everything. He, you, ever, you ever met touchers? They just got to touch stuff. And his blacksmith just got tired. Man, he's, what's this tool? What's this tool? What's this? What's this? What's this? And just, he just kept going on and he knew everything. And was driving the blacksmith crazy. And a black shoe, a blacksmith, he was preparing a shoe. And he had just fired that thing and she began to glow white. And he just tossed it to the side. Well, invariably this guy went up there and you know what he did. He picked that thing up, dropped it real quick. And the blacksmith said, uh, what's that about? He said, oh, I forgot the white ones are really hot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's what this idea take means. I'm a take thee away. The inference is it's going to happen suddenly. Mm, Proverbs chapter 1. And that without remedy. I'm going to snatch you away as though by twisting something out like a tree or like a root, if you will. The third verb he gives him, I'm going to pluck thee out of thy dwelling place. This is the idea of an eradication. Tear away. That place that you've put your tentacles in, that place that you've planted yourself in, I'm going to rip you out. And there's a fourth one, and he denotes the word, I'm going to root thee out of the land. Now you think about the word root as we use it in our language. You can talk about getting something to take root. This past year I put some plants in soil and I cut away the edge and I wet the, the, uh, uh, the flesh of the, the, the plant, you know, and I had a piece of tree, did the same thing. You plant them and they have given root. And I would say of those that I have rooted them. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about when you pull something out like a weed, you always want to get the root. That's the idea here. I'm going to pull you up as though by a weed. I'm going to grab all your roots and extract all your roots from the ground. And you know what happens to any plant by which you have taken up by the roots and cast it to the side? You know what's going to happen? The idea of being root away is the idea of terminated eradication. That is strong language. God shall likewise do this to the old dog forever. So, preach, what happened to dog? I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. That's why I think this picture is bigger than just dog the Edomite. It applies to all wickedness and all righteous individuals of all times, including the Antichrist. But I can tell you what's going to happen to the Antichrist now if you want to know that. I will say of the Antichrist that God's going to destroy him. He's going to break him down into little smithereen pieces. By the way, that's the prophecy of Daniel, isn't it? And I saw a stone not cut with hands and it descended upon the image and was smashed. I can say of the Antichrist that God's going to pick him up quickly. He's gone about in defiance against God and at Armageddon. The heavens opened. And there descended the lion of the tribe of Judah. Never really considered him. Not in the real sense, not in the repented sense. I can tell you that God's going to take him down. I can tell you that God's going to 
pluck him away. Well, that's an interesting word too. I'm going to pluck thee out of thy dwelling place. Somebody's going to pluck that rascal out. You know where he's going to be? Seated on the throne of God. It's not where he belongs. Ungodly people have no respect, and I'm speaking in a general sense, but this is applicable to Dog too. He has no respect for the holy authority that God has placed in and around him. By the way, given the opportunity, guess what he would have done to Saul? He has no respect for this authority at all. No respect for holiness or sacredness in any sense of the word. Neither does the Antichrist. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies, perch himself on the throne of God, proclaiming himself as God. What's going to happen one day? God is going to pluck him out. And then the scripture reminds us he's going to root thee out of the land of thy living. One day he'll be taken up. And the scripture says of him he'd be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. This is the prophecy regarding what God is going to do to wickedness. But then with that, there's a second part. Verse number 6, there's a prophecy about what the righteous are going to do when God pours out that judgment. And there's three words there. He said, You're gonna, we're going to see it, fear it. And I'm not saying this. The Bible's saying this. What's the last one? I'm going to laugh at it. I'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to see what's going to happen. You won't ever be able to eradicate the righteous people from the face of the earth. Note that down. I don't care how diabolically wicked Hitler was. I don't care how diabolically wicked the Antichrist will be. There'll never be a day that righteous people walk, do not walk. There'll never be a day that godly, righteous people fail to walk on terra firma. They shall see it. Listen, at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be godly, saved, saintly individual that are going to witness the utter demise and defeat of that wicked one. Yes, they might be hiding in the rocks. They might have went to their adulam. They might be fearful in one sense of the word. But you note this, that at the end of this time frame, God's people will still be standing. The same is true at the end of the tribulation, uh, end of the kingdom era as well. They're going to see it. They're going to witness it. The second thing he said, we're going to fear. I think that speaks for its essence. I'm going to fear God's power. There's a number of things I think every child of God ought to fear God for. Ought to fear his power. Is that not truly what the scripture says? Fear not him that can destroy the body, but fear him that can destroy the body and the soul. But I ought to fear God in another sense. I ought to fear his capacity. 139th Psalm is something I think we all should reflect on on a regular basis. He knoweth my thoughts. I'm pretty afraid of that. Oftentimes we let our minds wonder. Do you know God is aware of what your wondering mind is comprehending? Yes. God's aware of your thoughts before they've ever developed into words and long before you've ever spoken those words. Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is, he talks about any man that uh, seeth this one, lest the potter committed adultery in his heart. Do you realize that see has the idea of reflection and consideration? God's aware of every lustful, sinful thought that you've ever had or ever will have. That, that don't put a little fear in my heart. 
to put a guard about my eyes, and a guard about my mind. Those are things that I ought to fear. Listen, if God remembered this wicked individual's deeds and would visit him with destruction to the nth degree, how shall you and I save the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ escape? God remembered his evil works. One day when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to remember some things about me that are true that I wished he hadn't. There's a third thing here. He's going to laugh at him. The righteous shall see, fear, and shall laugh at him. Well, obviously they're not laughing at God. So what does this mean? They're going to laugh at him. I think following the connotation of the idea of fear, I don't think that it's simply a simple fleshly delight. Uh, I, uh, on occasion, there'll be this little show come up. It's like Fell Factory or something like that. And it's these guys that are falling. That's what it is. They'll go to do something. And one, this one I was watching recently, they're walking on ice. See how far they can go. And inevitably, guess what? I don't know. There's something humorous to me about that. I don't, I don't know. Slapstick. It's just funny. Funny because of their stupidity. I just think I'd try it a little bit harder. That's a selfish, selfish delight. I think, I think this is far greater. It's not simply mocking that person's misfortune. But it's a laugh really that comes at the satisfaction of a righteous God who intervened and judged him that had harmed other righteous people. It's more along the lines of a rejoicing in the victorious God. You would think about any great war that has any great battle in it. That when the cessation of hostilities comes, the victors are always joyful, full of cheer. That's the connotation. Friends, sometimes we walk in on Sunday morning like this, and it's rainy outside, and we're just so... Friend, one day there's going to be a day in heaven. A day when the, the evil has been destroyed, and all God's people will sing more glorious than ever before. They'll shout with joy and vigor in their heart. Merriment will be deep within. It will come from thence across their mouth and they'll sing glorious and triumphantly, Thou art worthy. That day's coming. Speaking of that day, it's the last two verses. There's a promise of eternity. Notice, if you will, David says, I'm like a green olive tree. Oh, that strikes deep tones within. The greenness, youth and vitality. Did you know the olive tree is a unique tree? I don't know, I've spoke to you before about the olives, but the olive tree, olive tree is a type of Israel. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, he mentions it as the wild olive tree. That's what he's referencing. David said, I'm, I'm green. I'm present in that thing. And this olive tree that's from the Mideast here, it's famine resistant. They're all over the place, even though there's a great dearth of water that is present. They're trees of antiquity. They last for years and years to come. This phrase is a picture of longevity 
It's a picture of survival. It reminds you of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not after the counsel of godly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scorner, but his delight is in the law of God. And what's the analogy given? He'll be like a tree that's planted by the river of water and he'll bring his fruit and he'll be abiding and he'll be steadfast. And that was the promise to David when eternity comes and the righteous have been eradicated. We'll sing and we'll shout with great joy and we'll be like the green olive branch. And guess what we'll do? We'll be there forever and ever and ever. After such, David concludes with three more words. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever. And notice this in the last part of verse number nine, I'll wait on thy name. You know, that sums up the whole of Christian life. In fact, it highlights when evil is visited upon godly people, when bad things happen to good people, when vicious dogs persecute godly priests. What's the response of you and I that are left? It's evil befalling. They did not experience the right prevailing. What are we supposed to do? Well, it's right here in verse number 9. Verse number 8, I'm going to trust God. There's no greater time. There's no wrong time to trust God, but there's no greater time than through difficulties. I'm amazed the number of individuals that I've met over the years that speak of what they used to be in Christ or what they used to do for God, and then they say, but I no longer do it because bad things, whatever bad things was, particularly them, happened. i tell you something. Trials of this life never destroy true faith. Preacher, why are you pounding the pulpit? I can't say it any more bluntly. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. I preacher, you don't understand the roaring lion that's come my way. Well, nobody, I know Daniel's roaring lion. And I know he didn't faint. I know the sovereignty of the hand of God that I can trust. I know what God's will is in regards to me as his child, his promises that he's made. Difficulty comes your way. You don't have to tuck tail and run. God will show himself mighty to you. He will strengthen you. Paul knew of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. At my first answer, no man stood with me. Next verse, but God strengthened me. He'll not fail you. Trials of life never diminish true faith. You know what they do? They magnify it. Because that's why God allows trials to come into your life. Not to crush you, sometimes to mold and to shape you, but always to bring glory and honor to Him. And if we'll recognize this in its moment, our trust will bring glory to Him. He says, the second thing you need to do, you need to praise God. Oh, what a wonderful discipline in life. Singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody into your heart and to the Lord. You know what you need to do in a day of difficulty? Praise Him. Oh, how weak and anemic sometimes our praises to God are. We are so emotionally tethered. If I feel good, I'm going to sing. But if I'm discouraged...
<laughs> Sing through the tears, friend. God's consistency towards you ought always be your fuel for divine praise. Say, preacher, I, nobody, we start lying, we go through difficulty. Nobody ever pre, uh, sings when they're going through difficulty. Well, that's not what happened to Paul and Barnabas. Seems like they're imprisoned wrongfully or accosted, physically abused, but what do you find them doing? We praise God. Detach the emotion of our fallen nature and dedicate our mind to worship consistently. You know, that's what bothers me about the contemporary Christian movement is focused on making you feel better. I can't make you feel, and what good does it do to feel better for an hour? No, I want the stability that comes constantly in the presence and person of Jesus Christ so that I am steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. Yes, sometimes I wane. Sometimes I am sick. Sometimes I am, uh, I am despondent towards things. But always I trust Him. And always I must praise Him, even in the darkest of night. There's a third thing. And of these previous two, this might to our nature seem to be the most difficult. Notice what he says. I will wait on thy name. All the power is in the name. Neither is there a name given among heaven outside of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. Take not his name in vain. I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. Oh, I don't know about you, but we don't love this idea of waiting. Yet so often, that is the very portion of the will of God that we most often need in our life, to wait. I know we're Americans, and so we're used to instant gratification. Sanctification is not an instantaneous thing. The will of God sometimes involves you waiting. Now, waiting is not the same thing as wasting time. As a kid, I'd go with my dad somewhere, and he'd catch me doing this. This number here. What do you all call that? He hated it. Stop doing that. <clears throat> well, what am I supposed to do? We didn't have Kindles and phones and all that, you know. I don't know. Do something busy. You know, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, waiting for God. Be busy. Oh, God hasn't opened up this grand door for you. He hasn't brought to you that mate that you want to marry. Don't veer off this path and find something. You'll rue the day on that one. Wait on him. What do I do? Stay busy. Praise him, trust him, wait on him. God hasn't opened up the door of ministry. What do you do? You wait on him. I marvel that so many times when we're waiting on God, we actually run the opposite way. How are you going to ever know he opened the door? You weren't where you're supposed to be. You left the presence, Ruth, as we heard Thursday night. Naomi, I meant. We left the place of bread. We went to Moab. How do you ever know the famine's over with? You went the wrong way, friend. Just stay the course. With an attitude of praise and a heart of trust. And David makes a final promise through inspiration. It is good for thy saints. That's a response. So when your dog comes, 
when that difficulty comes in a practical sense, what are you supposed to do? Praise, trust, wait. Why? It's good. Now listen, we'd be remiss if we didn't say this. And that future redeemed Israel is going to have to sing this very song. Only their dog is known as the Antichrist. And during those three and a half years of vehement persecution, they're going to praise, trust, and wait. The plan of God for the, His children has not changed. But to we that are in Christ, the truths of Romans chapter 8 and those last verses there, I've written in my Bible the hymn of security. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? All God's people said, no. For we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, which loved us. Certain judgment. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.